This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. I just picked up a new webcam per Epos Fox's suggestion. I'll have a link to the video that he did in the description below. I wanted to just try it out and see. Is it going to be a huge difference from using a mirrorless camera? I have the GH5 that I normally use. Um, and of course, you know, I'm using the NVIDIA broadcast to do the background replacement. So I had to do the one with my old apartment just for the fun of it. But I don't know. This seems kind of neat. You know, I'm looking at it now. I like it. I like the clear background, but it's definitely different. So I don't know. I'll mess around with something different at the end. But let me know what you think, because for weekly stuff, it would just be infinitely easier to use a webcam. But I didn't want a crap webcam. I wanted a decent quality one. So let me know what you think. And uh, I'll leave a link to the description. And there's no affiliate link with this. I just, I just, I'm a nerd and like messing with it. First up, Michael Vu wants to know if I know of any cheap one in two out component video splitters. They don't even need to display them at the same time. They could just switch outputs. Not sure if something like that exists with switching outputs though. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you could find cheap HDMI ones exactly like that, where it's one in two out or two in, one out, depending, and it's just a single push button. But I don't know if anything like that cheap exists for component video stuff. However, if you just do a search for component video distribution amp or something like that, you should be able to get leftover used equipment that used to be really high-end and expensive, but for pretty cheap. So I would definitely try that and see what you get. Uh, you should be able to spend just a little bit of, uh, of money on them. And that would, as long as it plugs into a wall with power, you should be able to use as many outputs as you want at the same exact time. So you don't have to worry. I would just, if you get any passive ones, double check that it's a, a manual push button switch. Otherwise it might be routing to two, uh, to two targets, which isn't the type of switch you want. I don't think they would even make something like that, but if you see a hobbyist one or something, you know, definitely just kind of look into it, but you should be able to get it pretty cheap. A couple of questions from Alan Bingham. First, is the analog brand DAC 100% necessary to get analog products working on CRT displays, or can you use a generic one? Yes, um, I would call this 99% necessary. It's the only way to get composite in this video, and uh, for RGB and component, you could set it to 480p and use a downscaler like the GBS control or the RetroTank 5X if you already own one of those. However, if you're looking to just purchase a product for this, no, those $20 DACs will not work this way. There's potential for community-made DACs in the future to be able to do it, but we can't even get our own made now because of the lack of chips with proper firmware flashed. We're working on it, but maybe... Uh, maybe in the future something like that would happen, but if it does, it would only be RGB and component. Um, but at the moment right now, you would only need analogs, uh, analog stack to do that. Next, they own four analog consoles. Um, they have all of those in addition to their PS3 and PS4 plugged into an 8x1 modern price HDMI switch. Since the NT Mini Noir supports simultaneous analog output, they also have it connected to their CRT using a D-sub to component cable. The question is, is there a way to split the signal and get simultaneous HDMI and analog output for all four analog consoles? No, absolutely impossible for the Super NT and Mega SG. Uh, the only way around that would be to buy DACs for each and do splitting and routing, and it would get pretty complicated, to be honest with you. So that would be kind of a hard one to pull off, but I would generally say no. Um, however, you could get creative with your HDMI routing and you could buy one DAC and route them between the consoles, but um, that would be pretty complicated. I'm not sure 
what you, you might need an HDMI matrix switch to do it and you would have to test for yourself for compatibility. It would be pretty rough. Um, on a side note, they don't care one way or another about doing this for PS3 and PS4. Yeah, there really wouldn't be a thing you could do anyway, unless you were running it through a downscaler. The only thing that you could do in the situation for all of those is set them all to 480p and then have the HDMI out split one to your display and then the other to your downscaler. And that should be able to work. However, you know, then you're HDMI output's always going to be 480p, so you'd have to probably put that through another scaler or something. So you could do it, but I don't think it would work the way that you were hoping, unfortunately. Uh, next, they've been interested in the Blue Retro project and because of offering a low-lag Bluetooth solution and comparable to, in some cases, depending on the controller, standard RF 2.4 gig. They're fully aware of the N64 receivers made by 8-bit mods because they own four of them, and they're also fully aware of the Blue Retro NES and GameCube Bluetooth mods that I have reported on. However, now they're seeing other external receivers that have Blue Retro printed on the product. Um, are those legit? So... Probably not. Um, the infamous Bitfux has has started work on that as well, and you know they I guess they started out trying to do it, uh, claiming that they were going to do it legit and support the open source project. But I, I don't know if they did. And you all know my very strong opinion that if you support them for that, then that's just funding them for other stuff. So I would really look into it and double and triple check. Um, I'll bring up the examples you have now, just to see. But there. It could be, yeah, so now you, you have one here that is a 1 to 4 adapter from the brand Army. That definitely doesn't look like something that they would have worked with the creator, uh, Jadar. And yeah, here's another one that looks like a clone of the PS1. So what I think you're probably seeing is companies that took this open source product and made their own, which... That is totally legit. That is completely fine. Anybody that's following the open source rules and making this is definitely encouraged. Thumbs up. If you throw anything back to the creator, great, but that's not required. So that's fine. But from the look of those at first glance, I would start looking into those stores and see what other stuff they sell. And I'd be willing to bet at least one of those two sells other clone products. So, you know, my advice my advice to you, I guess, is the same as my advice to anybody who's trying to look into stuff like this, is just kind of poke around a little bit and see what else you find in these stores and kind of feel it out. And if you read through and it says, this is Darth Cloud's Blue Retro open source project, here's a link to the GitHub, and but here's the one that we're selling, and you know, it's probably legit. But if they make it seem as if it's their own product, they don't link to the GitHub at all. They're not following the rules. So right off the bat, it's shady. But also check their store. And if you see a bunch of Bitfunks or RetroScaler branded products, then they're probably just a garbage company that steals from people. So, you know, and I, I realize, by the way, that's very harsh words to say. But, you know, hopefully people who have been listening to this channel long enough know that I wouldn't say something like that unless I truly meant it. Meant it. So, you know, just look around. If you see people doing right, cool. And if not, then, you know, that's, you found yourself a shady self. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. One more from Alan. Their automatic HDMI switch has some issues sometimes because the analog pocket dock seems to be always sending a signal to the switch, so it always defaults to that, and you would have to go and manually switch to other inputs. And unfortunately, I don't know any way around this other than adding some kind of power inline switch to the analog pocket dock, or of course, to just only using the switch in manual mode. But this is why I prefer manual HDMI switches. And in fact, if I had my way, I would have like a, an eight in or even a 16 in or stackable or something version of this, where it's essentially the same as unplugging and replugging a cable, just manually switching between them. Because uh, for this exact reason, I don't ever want that to mess with any of my setup. So it sounds like you might have to just get one of those power cables that has an inline power switch for it and leave the pocket dock off all the time 
or you know, look into a manual switch or just set yours into manual mode or something. Next up, Tony Escobar just got an Extron Crosspoint switch, and on the back there's a termination choice of 510 or 75 ohms. I would always set that to 75 ohms, and I wouldn't worry about the RGB lines. So whether that's component video, YPBPR, or RGB as part of RGBS or RGBHV, those first three lines should be completely and totally fine, and you shouldn't have any issues. Set those to 75 ohm, and you should be good. You should still have to worry about TTL level sync coming out of the sync port. So you should definitely set that to... Um, to 75 ohm, but definitely get, if you're going into SCART equipment, a, a BNC to SCART cable, those are directional, with a 470 ohm resistor on the sync line. There's a couple of different values you could use, 470 should be in the middle, but that will just ensure that your equipment is safe on the sync side of things. You should be totally fine on the RGB side, but if you have any doubts, that's why I love that $30 scope, because it's not a great piece of equipment. I certainly would never use it for development, but for this, Heck yeah, that's exactly what you would need to determine what the sync levels are actually are coming out of your switch and your consoles. So I would set it to 75 ohm and be fine. Just you know, keep in mind BNC to SCART cable would need a resistor in line. But if you have any doubts, pick up that scope and go from there. Next up, Dan Bailey's been hearing some rumors that if you don't power on your Wii U every so often, it could brick and wants to know if anybody has ever heard anything about this and had any real proof of it. And I personally have not had the issue. I've left my Wii U unplugged for at least a year. Once was the longest I ever went and it, it powered right back up. And it hasn't been powered on in a long time. And I actually really hope to go and talk to somebody who is a Wii U modding expert so that I could kind of go through and do a live stream and mod mine, but also show just to kind of show people the state of it. So if you're a, a Wii U modding expert, please reach out. I, I know a lot of my friends are, but, you know, if you're an expert that would want to do a live stream with me, then, you know, please reach out and we'll, we'll figure this out because I think it would be a lot of fun. But I don't know if that has merit to it. And there could always be other factors now. I'm, if somebody has proof, then what I'm about to say is bullshit and a lie and ignore me, please. But in, unless somebody has proof that there is a specific reason for why it's bricking, it could just be the very standard things of you leave your Wii U and your power supply in a closet somewhere in your attic and it gets really hot and the capacitors dry out and now it won't power up because the caps in your power supply are dead or something like that. There are tons of things like that that could happen to any electronic device that are very plausible, even for new-ish things. I know we use you know, over 10 years old now, I think, but still, it's just the point that it could happen to any electronics. But once again, maybe I'm full of shit. Maybe there's somebody who has posted proof as to why this happens. I just haven't had time to dig deep into it. And I have a lot of friends that own game stores or, or work through game stores and no one's mentioned it to me yet. So I actually have been kind of busy the past couple of months. So maybe I, I missed it, but I just wanted to add my feedback because I also, you know, polite warning to people, anything could have this happen if, depending on storage. And, you know, I always try to be realistic, right? You're not going to have a hermetically sealed gaming room to make sure this doesn't happen, but don't do the opposite. I wouldn't go to extremes. Don't leave your stuff in the attic in the summertime. And if you're, you know, if you know it gets hot, it gets well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I forgot that wasn't Celsius because it's been so long since I've traveled abroad. <laughs> it, it gets really hot in my attic. So I wouldn't leave any important electronics up there. Uh, that, that's just kind of basic tips and stuff. But yeah, does anybody have any proof of what's potentially been going on with the Wii U's? If so, let us know. Roddy has an Extron Crosspoint switch running RGBS to their SCART-enabled TV, but they'd also like to hook up a 9-inch composite-only monitor and want to know what the state of RGB to composite converters are. So the short version is there's nothing available today that gets this perfect. You could try daisy-chaining a bunch of stuff together, but you're probably going to add lag. And you could try one converter that should work, but the one that I personally tested was damaged in shipping, so I can't vouch for it, although it should work. So allow me to elaborate. Converting RGB to composite video isn't as easy as it seems, and you need more than just those four signals. So at the moment, there is not a converter out there that does it great. There's a bunch that does RGB to S-Video that is pretty good, but not composite. So if you had an S-Video input monitor, I would say just get any one of those, like the Ashenworks or whatever else. However, going to composite video 
you could try to do something like convert it to HDMI, maybe get one of the older retro tanks, and then use an HDMI to composite converter, but then you're gonna get a 480i output that most likely would have a bunch of lag, and I don't even really know how, I don't know your, your the purpose of this. If you're doing this for like, hey, here's art project style. I'm gaming on this display, but I also kind of want to show it on this one. That might actually be fine. But if you're looking to, to game on it, I wouldn't do that yet because you could introduce some lag and some, you know, some unwanted artifacts. So the way that you could do it right now is Retro Castle has a converter that's the same as the one built into their Mr. Cases that has a variable capacitor. So every time you load up a device, you have to turn that cap until it looks good. Now, the good news about that is it's it's like a clock. So it's not like you have to sit there and dial it in for hours. You basically just put your screwdriver in and you turn it very slowly until you see the screen looking okay, and then that's it. So it should be a perfectly fine solution. However, the one that I had was damaged in shipping, so I can't really say how it works. I can say how their Mr. Case works, which was awesome, but awesome in consideration of what you're doing. You're converting RGB to composite without those extra signals. So in that context, it was great, but you'll have to buy one and take a risk on it if you want to give it a try. I should probably just buy another one from Ivory right now anyway, just for the heck of it. But um, so that would be it for now. I would like to see other things in the future that's designed for situations like this, but unfortunately, I think that's kind of going to be your best bet. So, you know, let me know if you have any other specific uses that aren't just gaming. Maybe I could elaborate on how to do some of it, but I think for now, maybe the Retro Castle one's your best bet. I'll try to leave a link in the description and I'll see if I can just buy one for me as well, just to see. Next up, Oliver Clare has been working on a couple of wiki articles that some folks might find useful. The first is Comparison of Power Supplies, which provides detailed specifications for the power supplies used by various retro gaming consoles. And the second is called Dimensions for Game Cartridges, which contains measurements and photos of the proprietary game cartridges for those consoles. The articles are not yet 100% complete, but they think they're at a stage where they're ready to step back from them. Would be very, they would be very grateful if I could encourage other wiki users and listeners to contribute by adding their own photographs and measurements to fill in any gaps and sign off on the updates with their wiki handles. Any feedback is also greatly appreciated on the introductory section of the power supply article. Oliver tried really hard to try to strike a balance between technical correctness so that nobody damages their equipment by following the advice versus using simplified analogies that anybody could understand. Hopefully these pages could be used for those interested in retro video game console restoration and repair, and they would be grateful for any help in completing them. Major shout outs to Apollo Boy, Glitch God, Black Magic, Bomb Bloke, Nagaton, Sirius Martin, and Adam Korlick for getting the articles to where they are. I don't know if you're kidding about Adam, but if he's actually helping and caring about technical stuff, then I'll give him a big hug the next time I see him. Um, so yes, obviously I read that whole thing because I wanted to share this because this is the type of contributions I'm so unbelievably grateful for. In fact, I am very sorry that I haven't held up my end of the bargain and started moving stuff uh, off of retro RGB. It's just been kind of an insane past couple of months. So good insane mostly, but uh, yeah, I, I promise I'm going to try to get to that as soon as I can. But when it comes down to it, right, I got the bare minimum stuff I have to do. I got to get these podcasts out. I got to keep the website running. And then it's like, okay, now I have five extra minutes of work. What do I do? So sorry, sorry. To, I, I know, uh, you know, don't mean to hijack your question here, Oliver. I just wanted to explain my, uh, my massive failures in, in helping out in the wiki, but I really appreciate everything you and everybody else has done. So I'm going to link to those pages. And if anybody could help out double checking them, and of course, adding to other pages, please just jump right in and do so. Three questions from Adam, Adam, Ant. First, they have a CRT that seems to have the image shifted a quarter inch to the right. It's almost not noticeable unless they're using an EverDrive and the game list has part of the first letter cut off. How would they go about correcting this? Can it be done in some hidden settings or does it require them to open the CRT and do some adjustment? Um, roll the dice on that one. You would have to look into the service manual and see. Maybe there's a service menu. Maybe you would have to open it up. 
maybe you could open it up and there would be very easy to access dials right there or maybe it would be buried inside you'd really have to dig deep and kind of look at that one um, and hopefully you could find some basic geometry settings so you could just squish it in and shift it over but it always varies depending on crts and that's why i recently just uh, donated redonated regifted a crt to brooklyn arcade because it had all of the knobs right in front and it worked great and then it stopped working. So I think it's just a couple caps on the power supply. I'm sure Jose will get to it whenever he has free time, which is laughable because he has as little free time as I do. But I, I specifically brought a dead monitor to an arcade for that reason, though, because all you do is the front panel pops down and you could just have those dials right there. No menu, no on-screen display, just a bunch of really easy to access dials, which is going to be great because even though it's a 31 kilohertz monitor, um, you still bounce between you know a bunch of different platforms that could do 480p you know like going between naomi and you know some of the other boards that output 480p so yeah hopefully you could find some dials easy to access but if anybody ever stumbles across a pc crt monitor with the dials right in front and you were looking for one of those hopefully the tube's still in good condition because that's a just makes everything easier at least in my opinion i don't know maybe somebody out there really prefers the on-screen display but next they're finding conflicting information on this they want to mod a fat PS2 with a mod chip so they can play backups from a hard drive. You don't need to do that, but I'll continue with your question. There's the Modbo 5.0, which is readily available, but there's also the Infinity 2.0, which is made from unobtainium. Is it worth it to buy uh, the Infinity, or should they just use the Modbo? So I would use neither. Um, you could just get a free McBoot SD or um, memory card, which you could just pick those up on eBay. There's I bought it from I bought one from a seller completely pre-configured because I, I didn't get a chance to do a video on it, but I was going to use it as part of a RetroNAS video just to show how easy it is now to load games onto your PS2. And I bought it from an eBay seller thinking like, OK, you know, and I know I'm negative sometimes, but I was like, let me see what this scumbag scalper is going to do. Am I going to get some haphazardly made thing? And the price was completely fair. It was configured perfectly. It shipped the same day. It was just all good so you could find people that you have a pre-configured sd card or a memory card sorry i keep saying sd playstation memory card pre-configured and that's really all you'll need then you just have that and you have one of the network modules in back and you plug your hard drive into it and that that's that's it then you could just use a usb to hard drive converter to load games on it or if you were running RetroNAS, just plug the network converter into the back, you know, the, just plug it right in, plug your network cable into it, and then just point it to the IP address of your RetroNAS, and you're done. You just drop PS2 games right in the folder. The only reason you would want a mod chip is if you wanted to play PS1 discs, including PS1 backups, or if you wanted to play PS2 discs of all regions, including backups as well. But I would skip it altogether just in my opinion but you know please if anybody out there has some thoughts as to why i wouldn't want to do that and still to go through the trouble the, the lot of trouble of putting in a playstation 2 mod chip i'd love to hear your opinion the only thing that i will not listen to is people that say running over the network's dumb you get skips and it slows down when was the last time you tried it because three or four years ago maybe but when i was testing with retro nas it was fine so I'm not playing a lot of games, though, and I'm not playing a lot of stuff with cutscenes and, you know, streaming video off the disc, but, you know, well, I'd love to hear your opinion. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Last, what are my thoughts on using solid core enameled wire for mods? The PS2 mod is very wire heavy, and uh, enameled wire is solid core, easy to manipulate, hold its shape, and doesn't have insulation to take up valuable space, but you never see modders using it. Are, am I missing something? Probably. And I mean that with respect because I don't really know the answer either, but I just, I look to the people I know that mod these things that have done a great job forever. I mean, you know, Cruise, Voltar, Modsville USA, uh, Tito, and I just use what they use. And maybe they use what they use just because their friends do and there isn't a real reason, or maybe there is a real reason, but I just know that it works for the people that are absolutely top, at top modders and have been doing it forever, so that's what I would choose just, just because. So anybody have thoughts on that, please let me know. But at the very least, you can't go wrong using that wire. Maybe there's a better one, but I think you'd be you'd probably best just if you decide to use a mod chip, just copying what the, the top modders are doing.
Andrew Jennings has a question, and I have a bunch of opinions on this, but I just want to start by saying these are opinions and not facts. So there's going to be some audiophile with some actualies in the comments, and that's totally fine. That's your opinion too, but probably not fact. So the question is, what audio interface do I recommend when it comes to ripping vinyl records? Um, my recommendation would be treat this like MD Fourier. Go way above and beyond just in case. However, do you really need to rip your records? Here's my, my thought on this. When I listen to vinyl, it's because that is the experience that I want on records that I feel would probably sound better on vinyl because that's how they were mixed and mastered. And I've talked about this in the interview with Ronnie and I think with Pat as well, the one of the, the Shiro crew. The short version is basically that if you have a band and or their engineers or the whole team really working their butts off to get the sound that they were looking for at that time. And the main thing that people were using to listen were records or cassettes or whatever else that very often could be the best way to hear it. Not because vinyl is better than digital, but because that is what the people who were making it were listening to. And I, I, sort of proved this it's subjective of course but there is a halloween keeper the seven keys part two the cassette sounds better than the cd and i'd be willing to bet that the band or, uh, or the engineers were listening to cassette mixes on the way home every night and that's kind of how they were tuning it so for me personally like i have bought some newer soundtracks on vinyl and they're usually just fine i, I usually like the digital version better for brand new music but when I want to go listen to the original Black Sabbath album, you know, Aqualung, whatever else, that's kind of what I want. I want that experience. I want to take the vinyl out. I want to put it on the turntable. And sometimes you will find remasters that the digital versions will sound better. They did a very, very good job. Most of the time, though, I'm kind of sticking with my guns on the original medium is best. So I said all that to say this. What if the thing that you're looking to or that you're intending to listen to it doesn't have other versions that are good or or worse the only other versions were badly remastered so you want to have an archive of that so that you could listen to it anywhere you go and you want to make sure that you always have those songs and maybe share them with everybody else too so for that that's when i would treat this like an md Fourier experiment i would use an audio interface that is rated as not adding too much to the noise uh, the noise floor. So Motu M4, the older uh, M audios, there's a bunch of them. You, you could join their discord if you want to talk about that. And then I would go absolutely overkill. And people have argued with me about this, but no one's actually come up with solid proof as to why. But I would do something like record it in 24-bit 192K and, you know, as Wave or FLAC to start. And then, of course, compress it down to MP3s after that or whatever else that you prefer to listen to. But I would want that recording because while the information that's stored on the record isn't going to be past those audio ranges, you're trying to get the best out of that. You're trying to pull all of the sound. So some of that warmth of the needle, you know, there's a lot of things that when you're listening to these, your brain can't perceive them in real time. You, it's just like a CRT versus LCD. No human could ever walk up to these displays and go, oh, the CRT is drawing one line at a time, you know, 16.5 milliseconds every time they draw a frame. Like you, your eyes can't see that, but your eyes could absolutely walk up to a CRT that's sitting next to an LCD and go, these are different. And it's the same thing with music. Music. So there's a lot of frequencies that you're not going to be able to, to pick out that I think if you're willing to, if you're talking about something that you're really wanting to archive, go nuts, go overkill, and then you could always just compress it right back down afterwards and you always have those. So much longer answer than you probably wanted, but to answer your question, what audio interface do I recommend when it comes to ripping vinyl? I would use MD Fourier approved equipment at their highest settings. So some of them, you know, would probably only go up to 96K, which is fine, but just use the maximum setting of whatever device that you have. And also take other things into account. Do you have a setup at home where you just love your preamp? Make sure that's included. Um, do you have a friend that has a better preamp than yours? Maybe borrow theirs and rip a couple of records one day. Uh, kind of go from there. For me personally, the preamp I got is totally fine. It is absolutely fine. It does the job, but it's not exciting. And it almost isn't as good as the one built into that NAD 316B amp. So 
Uh, I'm hopefully going to be able to get another one this summer, and I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not spending thousands of dollars on a preamp for something that I'm only going to listen to 20 albums the rest of my life on, but that that is something that you should consider, but that's also subjective. So, And that's something that I would never get into an argument about because I just don't know enough, and to a point, don't care, because it's so easy to fall into that audio trap where you get 80% there, and it sounds amazing, and you've dropped three grand, let's say, and every other percentage you go up from, you know, 80% good to as best as you can, you're spending thousands more for just a small percentage of bumps. So you're going to have to make your decision on what you want to do as far as that goes. But as far as the interface, MD4A approved because you're not going to add any noise to the signal that wasn't there to begin with. A couple of questions from Jason Guffey. First was a follow-up to last week's questions about the attract modes on emulation boxes, and I answered with the mister in mind, but Jason doesn't have a mister yet. So does anybody else have any suggestions? Because I haven't done that with software emulation in a long time. Hyperspin was a big one. I made my own using... When I say made my own, it was not pretty, but it did the job. Uh, I, I did that for a while too, but I just wouldn't even know what's modern. And it's eight years was the last time I did that. So if anybody could help with that attract mode stuff, please let me know. Um, as for this week, a few new questions. First, they have a buddy that uses a cordless soldering iron for their workshop in an auto shop. And while it doesn't have too much as far as control options, it gets the job done and they can't argue with its convenience when they can't bring whatever they want to solder out to the garage where their Kesker is. Do I have any suggestions as far as brands or things they should look for to pick one up themselves? I got no clue. However, two things. If your buddy works in an auto shop and that does the job for them, it's probably totally fine as far as, you know, hey, here's a secondary iron, but watch the voltage and the temperature on it because a lot of auto shops use very, very hot irons. And back when I was selling those RGB boards a million years ago now, I got a lot of people complaining that, hey, I just touched my soldering iron to it and the pad burnt right up. What's this piece of crap that you sent me? And it's like, well, what did you have the voltage sent to? Like, oh, I just cranked it up to all 120 watts and just let it get hot. Like, no, 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 no. You can't do that for electronics. So make sure that it's, you know, at the standard 300-ish Fahrenheit or whatever that you would normally use. Um, next, the same person has a very few, uh, a few very dusty old CRTs in storage, one of which is a Dell Ultrascan P1100, 1110, which is a Trinitron rebadge. What do I think they should do first as far as cleaning it out and testing it? Do I think an air compressor could damage the components inside or scratch the screen? Um, no. So, you know, don't obviously don't put the air compressor directly onto the front of the screen. But if you take the back off of the monitor, well, actually, I would just start by blowing it into the vent holes. And if you break a component by doing it that way, the component was going to fall off soon anyway. So, you know, if anybody disagrees, please post in the comments, but it just, I've never, I've never done that before and had it break when it wasn't an already broken device anyway. So I would think just go ahead and do that. If you want to take the back off, that's even better. Check for bugs and spider webs and stuff in there and then kind of take a look at the inside. And if it's like coated with a layer of grease and stuff, you could look into using electronic cleaner, and uh, which is basically like non-conductive liquid. So you would take it outside, you would spray it all down, obviously don't have it plugged into the wall, and then you would just kind of leave it, I would leave it a full day to dry, um, and I would go out every hour or so and respray it with compressed air just to kind of get any of the moisture out. But that electronics cleaner is designed for exactly that. Don't take a hose to it like you see on YouTube sometimes, which sometimes you have to do that, but that's for completely different scenarios that are not what you're talking about. So you could do that if it's super gross, but uh, I, I think just hitting it with compressed air should be good enough. And then as far as uh, wiping the screen, you could just start with a damp cloth and try it and go from there and see. Um, I guess if you use Windex, if it has uh, some kind of coating on it that could be bad so just a damp cloth to start should be fine and uh lastly they're all i think we're all aware now that crts can be quite the heat generators when compared to their lcd cousins and he obviously puts quite a bit of strain on small electronic components that are already decades old though i think it would make sense to install or set up a fan uh, either outside or even within a crt shell so yes and no the way i look at this stuff is always the total picture 
So, you know, it's kind of like my analogy before, like you don't want to have to have a hermetically sealed gaming room to make sure this stuff lasts forever, but don't, don't make bad choices. So don't put it directly next to your space heater. Like I have one of those floor standing space heaters when it gets really cold in here. Like don't have that aimed at the side of your CRT. If you have to put it in your room next to where your heater is, then yes, maybe put a fan and also maybe just... Uh, get a temperature probe. If you want to get one of those Fleer temperature monitors, those are really fun to play with, but they're expensive. But for like 20 bucks, you can get just a temperature probe. And I think some uh, some multimeters even have a, a thermal sensor built, uh, either built in or comes with one, or you could just buy one that plugs in. So maybe do that. Maybe just kind of stick it in the vent hole. Don't put it too far. You don't want to short anything out, but just have a sense of the ambient temperature and see how hot it gets and kind of just take it from there. If it stays within operating range, then I would kind of leave it alone. But if you start to get high enough where it's starting to get close to the highest recommended operating range, not the maximum, the recommended, then yeah, maybe get a fan installed or worst case, just get a small desk fan, just put it on one side of it and that's it. And then that way you don't have to worry about wiring it internally and possibly, you know, messing anything up by having it connected to the wrong thing. So just my opinions, but if that's something you're serious about, you know, if you find that certain monitors are running very hot, there's a few other things you want to check too. Like, is it covered in a layer of dust? Is there, you know, what else is wrong with it potentially? But yeah, fans are never a bad thing. I would just be kind of careful while doing it. So Oliver Clare has been trying to hunt down a magnetically shielded subwoofer, and they couldn't find the Yamaha one Vanessa recommended. They found a bunch of new units on Amazon India and Amazon UAE, but those countries have restrictions on the export of higher value electronics and speakers containing magnets. So that's a totally dead end. They found a bunch secondhand on the German version of eBay classified ads, which I'm not going to try to pronounce because I'm going to sound like I'm singing a Rammstein song and all my German friends will just make fun of me forever, which is fine, <laughs> but I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> um, so the other option they found was on Yahoo Japan, but the voltage in uh, Japan is 100 volts. And in Ireland, it's 240 volts, so they would have to put a converter in there, which, of course, could always have the chance of affecting sound quality. So I guess I guess we need to open this up for discussion. Does anybody know of a magnetically shielded subwoofer that is of decent quality? And if it's not powered, what is a good recommendation for a power amp for a subwoofer that's for normal people? Because I, if I get recommendations for a $5,000 amp that just powers the subwoofer, I'm going to ignore it and probably make fun of you too. <laughs> I love that stuff, by the way. But, uh, you know, we're trying to give advice for your average person who just loves audio and CRTs. Not, so not a $100 solution, right? This is for people that love audio and CRTs, not for casual people who, you know, who just want budget stuff. I love that stuff too, but this question is about your average enthusiast, not your I'll spend any amount of money to get it enthusiast. So does anybody have any recommendations? Does anybody in Germany have access to the, the eBay classified ads to see if maybe they could help uh, help Oliver get one out or get all of us? And you know, what else do you really think is out there because buying used stuff is always iffy you have to get it home and try it and see how it sounds and you never know right used speakers could be mostly blown so you get them home and you think they're awesome for a week and then it's one big bassy spot and you know with some explosion in a michael bay movie where a transformer eats another transformer and now your subwoofer is dead so i know it's it's something that I would like to know the answer to because while I'm completely fine having my subwoofer on the opposite side of the room, it is also underneath a bookshelf. So occasionally I get rattles coming from there, which I'm never going to be able to permanently stop. So having it back next to the CRTs would be perfect. So can anybody help us out with this one? It would be really appreciated. Next up, Demon Koo wants to know, what happens if you have an Extron Crosspoint switch that either doesn't have audio inputs or you don't want to deal with making the Phoenix connectors or paying the higher price for some of them? Can you just use the HV ports as left and right audio? No, you're going to get a ton of interference. It's the wrong, uh, it's the wrong impedance. Maybe it'll work, but it's probably not going to be good, and I just I wouldn't risk it. So if you're on a budget, 
I would make your own Phoenix Phoenix connectors. I think that's what they're called. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on that, but I would make your own. It shouldn't be too expensive, uh, and it shouldn't be too bad because you're just talking about left, right, and ground. It's not like wiring a SCART cable, which could be maddening if you try to do that yourself. Um, you could try to look on eBay for people that have them pre-made or either the RCA adapters or anything else, but yeah, I would do it that way. And if you have a cross point that does not have audio, look into an audio switch. You could probably get an older switch that's just left and right audio to one or maybe even more outputs for fairly cheap on eBay. And just like the cross points, you could probably find audio switches that were very, very expensive back in the day. And now they're cheaper because nobody really needs left and right audio switches other than us anymore. So yeah, I wouldn't use the cross point the cross points HV ports for that. I would just either use a Phoenix connector or another device. A couple of things from D and the first is more of a discussion really than a question, but they recently picked up a new inbox PlayStation 2 Slim. So leftover stock that somebody had, you know, somebody had bought it years ago and just kept it, whatever. And when they opened it up, it wouldn't read discs. So they were kind of wondering like, is there really a safe way to get a new inbox console? Is there potential for damage? And it's kind of like anything else that's been floating around for 20 years. I mean, maybe that box is brand new and maybe they had the box itself like nicely sealed with bubble wrap around it. But if they moved it a bunch of times and kept throwing it down flights of stairs, if it was properly packed, it'll still look mint, but the things inside might be jiggled around. And of course, anything, any electronics components that are old, the capacitors could dry up in them. So if these were all stored up in an attic somewhere, and you know, just like we were talking about before, that you could have something that's dead. Or a Game Gear. You could buy a brand new sealed Game Gear, open it up, it's going to smell like fish, and it's not going to work because all of the capacitors have leaked out and corroded and might have completely destroyed the motherboard to the point where a brand new sealed, like new in-box Game Gear, I hope at some point they're going to be worth less because you're guaranteed to have a broken item. And same thing with games, right? You have a new sealed game, how do you know the game's actually in there? Yeah, you know, what condition is it in? Was it ever water damage? Like it's just one of those things where you have to you have to make that gamble and you have to decide for yourself if that's what you want to do. But even like I got a couple of brand new cassettes this past year, just running some audio tests like we were talking about before. And one of my friends actually recommended try getting uh, like new condition because maybe the tape had been in heat and the tape sticks together. So as it's playing, it might rip or kind of tug too hard on the player that I have, the cassette player. So yeah, it's just kind of a gamble that you're going to have to make and decide if that's the right thing. But, you know, that said, if I ever got rich and had the money, I would love to buy a new inbox Super Nintendo just to have maybe an original NES and a Genesis, but not for anything other than I think it would be neat. That's also complete side note why I think uh, repros, excellent high quality box repros should be made, but where the UPC symbol is, instead of the UPC, it should say, this is a repro made in 2023, this is not original, just so, you know, it would be harder to scam people with it, but I would buy a bunch of those boxes and have them over, you know, up in the top of the room over here, I thought that, I think that'd be really neat, but anyway. Your actual question, though, do I have any suggestions for a quality HDMI switch that doesn't break the bank? Um, cheap HDMI switches with two outputs? No, nothing has worked consistently for me. Um, uh, for all different things in all different scenarios. Now, the one that I tested, the Matrix switch, that did seem to work great, and it didn't get it tripped up with the OSSC and audio, but I also only used it for about three months, whereas the other ones that I've been using, I, you know, over years, they never worked right. So I don't know, maybe I'm being a little harsh on that one, but I'll leave the HDMI shootout video here for you to watch yourself. Either one of those switches probably is going to be a good thing for you, but how do you know that the switch you buy today is the same one that I reviewed months ago, especially with the part shortage? So obviously I would love to see you get a good switch that I already owned and tested that I might get an affiliate link on. I'd love to point you down that road, except I have to be honest with you. Test it yourself and test it right away. Don't, don't let that return period lapse. And that way, if you don't like it, you can just return it, but definitely test it first, just in case. Uh, as far as if you don't need two outputs or you don't need audio extraction or any of those extra features that I like, just get the cheapest five in one out switch. Try to get one with a remote that sets to manual mode and just kind of go from there. Um, for me personally right now, if I needed to use an HDMI switch, 
the two that I bought for that video are actually great, but let's just say I didn't have those. I'm, I would see what features I needed, but if it was literally just, you know, couple in to one out with no extra features, I would buy the cheapest one I could find and hope that it worked and just kind of go from there. And I, I don't think I would drop some real money on anything today. Uh, you said you don't need 4K 120, but you know, uh, I guess that's uh, something that you might need in the future. We'll find out. You mentioned that you got some cheap ones and it worked fine until they didn't. But I mean, that's kind of how it goes with those, right? I don't ever like to waste anything and I certainly don't like to waste people's money. But what if you bought a $20 HDMI switch once a year for five years? You're still cheaper than you would spend on a known higher quality one. So that one's going to be totally up to you. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm... Uh, you know, you made the point of you're all for tinkering and experimenting, but with so many projects and so little time, sometimes you just want to get something that just works so you could spend your time elsewhere. I couldn't agree more, but with, when you're talking about HDMI switches with a bunch of features, then you're going to have to drop some real coin on it. Um, you know, I think somebody mentioned last week, uh, it might have been Jason, that they spent like 200 bucks on a 16 by one. Yeah, 16 by one. I think that's a pretty decent one. Um, I've heard other people talk about that one, but that's still 200 bucks as opposed to 20. So <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be your decision. But if you want to clarify, like if there's anything that you definitely need, or maybe just watch that video I did, maybe that'll answer your question. But if not, then just clarify if there's anything specifically that you need, and maybe I could try to ask around, or maybe the one that was talked about last week is the one for you for 200. I'm not really sure, but it would be really easy to start getting up there in price to get a bunch of features in, and it might not even still work right for retro. Quantum Guitar recently upgraded from the Sony PVM 1340 to a Sony PVM 14M2U, which they think should hold them over until they eventually find something in a 20-inch size. Now that they have access to the service menu on-screen display for geometry adjustments, they were hoping I could elaborate a little more about some of the geometry adjustments I might recommend when switching between different consoles. Yeah, this is the easiest thing. So I, I'll start with a very quick opinion and then jump into fact. My opinion is that I just have learned to appreciate CRTs for what they are. If you want perfect geometry, grab an OLED and a great scaler or something and, you know, know that there's going to be a difference. However, there is a point where you're going to want to spend a little bit of time and effort in this. Little bit. So, of course, pop it open, see if capacitors are leaking out. Be very careful, of course, you know, it's a CRT, you don't want to get shocked, but shine a flashlight in and if it doesn't look like the board is going to be damaged, then you could just use it as is. Fire up the monoscope pattern on the 240-piece test suite and set the geometry exactly like it says to. So you have the overscan cut off properly and basic rotation and just kind of go from there. That does not take a lot of time at all. Probably will take longer time to get into the service menu and find the geometry setting than it would to do that. And here's the best part. Let's say two, three years from now, you get a capacitor job done and everything is tweaked up now. Everything You find out that the capacitors were really bad, not leaking because you checked with the flashlight, but now it's fixed and the geometry is all off. But all you've set was like four or five settings and it's basic stuff. All you're doing is centering, you know, height and width, squishing. So that's why I always love to do that because you can get the proper overscan for whatever console you're using by firing up the 240p test suite first tweaking it. And this isn't something I would do if I was going to play like an NES game, a Genesis game, an SNES game. But if you're sitting down like, okay, this week I'm going to replay A Link to the Past, fire up the 240p test suite, the monoscope pattern, get everything centered in, and that's it. And it's so easy. And it's the small differences like that, that I would absolutely take the time to do. And then just kind of go from there. If every time you scroll horizontally, it looks like, you know, it looks like you're kind of looking through a wave, then you're probably going to need some capacitors replaced and a lot more work. But maybe that's just not anything that's going to bother you too much. So for me, I would just get the overscan set up properly and that's it because it's just super easy to change back. And as long as you have access to the OSD, then that's it. Also, do I have any advice for cables to use for RGB out to connect multiple monitors and or a Tink 5X via component or SCART? They're a little unclear either whether you could accidentally pre-terminate using the wrong cables or adapters. So it's a good question, but um, 
I would I would go with the basics for this one. So let's just say you're using only component video. I would get some of those cheap RCA to BNC adapters. I would get extras. So I'm not going to bore everybody. I'd probably say this every other week. But if you get a bag of 20, if you need 12, because you might have one that's a loose fit that you would just toss, but you save a ton of money doing it that way as opposed to buying the really fancy ones that you'd want for an oscilloscope. Um, but I would just get those. I would get some HD Retrovision component cables because they're very cheaply priced compared to everything else and they're super shielded. So everything's going to be great with those and they carry audio so you could link through those as well. And that's basically it. Then you could just link monitors together and then go right into the tank. If you're using RGB SCART, then obviously you're going to have to worry about that as well. But you might actually be able to get creative. So you could maybe use the HD retrovision cables and then just get single shielded one RCA cable. Maybe get like a subwoofer cable just to know that they're shielded and use that for sync. And then you would then have to figure out what you do on the output side. Do you manually plug in between SCART and component when you go into the Tink 5X? Do you have some kind of conversion done? Um, if you're going all SCART, then that's pretty easy. Then I would probably just still use the HD retrovision cables and the speaker cable, but on the output side, BNC to SCART. So the only way that would get confusing is if you had a mix of SCART and component that you wanted to use at the same time. And then you would just kind of have to figure out the best way to go about doing that. So maybe picking up an RGB to comp or something or, uh, you know, I don't know. That would get tricky. That That might get pretty tricky. So... Figure that out, let me know what you think, and I can try to help fill in the blanks after that. Well, that's it for this week. For anybody watching on video, what do you think of the webcam? Is this thing something that I could use for the weeklies? It definitely seems like something I'd be able to use for live streams. So for when I'm walking around and I can't drag the camera around because I'm tripping over wires, I've been using the other webcam from like 10 years ago. This is definitely a step up for that. But what about the weekly stuff? Here's a comparison. And here is the GH5 that I normally use, which is obviously better and definitely what I would still continue to use whenever I was doing any fancier videos or not the weeklies. And it's not like I don't care about the weeklies. It's just that so many people listen only that if it's going to be this much more convenient for me, maybe I'll just switch over. But the one thing that I didn't do because I'm still in the middle of testing is uh, I had the webcam sitting on my monitor, which means when I was bouncing the table around, Every time I leaned in, you'd see everything shake, whereas the camera is on the ledge in front of me. So obviously, if I switched to having the webcam permanently, I would have that up there as well. But other than the shakes, um, I mean, the GH5 is obviously better. I'm looking at this now, but how much better is it? Should I stick with the webcam to make things easier? Do I keep the much more professional look of the GH5? Or does nobody care? And I'm really just screaming into an empty chamber here, listening to myself ramble. It's fine too, but anyway, thank you very much to everybody who participates in these. If you would like to participate in them, please just put whatever question you have, wherever the latest Q&A post is, wherever you support, because the way all the support services work, I can't really figure out what's the newest questions. So I just like to have them in real time, scrolling through the latest post and just trying to have a casual conversation like this. Uh, the past couple of weeks, it's only been questions on Patreon, but it, that's just because there's a lot more people who support there. So wherever you support, fire away. Thanks as always. I'd uh, love to hear your suggestions and opinions on any of this stuff, and I'll see you all next week.